We have the opportunity and the blessed privilege this morning, as we have noted already, to lift our voices together in song, to appreciate the teaching of the Word of God, to also humbly pray to our Heavenly Father for His guidance and His sustenance. As Roger mentioned earlier, we're certainly thankful and appreciative that all is well with us to allow us to gather today, our membership and our visitors alike, that we're happy and glad that each has come our way, and we hope and trust that our time together here in worship and magnification of the name of God will set us on a course of betterment this week for service in His kingdom. As we consider a lesson this morning under the heading and under the title, The Head of the Woman is the Man, you might have noted that that was taken directly from verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 11. And it is to that chapter I would invite your attention as we give some thought to not only that verse, but a few of the other features and factors as it's found in that placement to give us a better appreciation of what's involved in that passage and also what its principle and application might be even in your life and mine this day. To do that with regard to some introductory matters, the blessing that we feel in worship only leads us to see in the preciousness of the gospel text just how special a book this is. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. The last two verses of 2 Timothy 3 have already then pointed us to the fact that this book is so special, precious, and unique because in it we find what will lead us to completion. That is, to stand before God in a way that would be approved, acceptable, godly, and right. And isn't it amazing that Jesus in John seventeen seventeen said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You and I then appreciate in the sacred pages of the holy volume the truth of God on any subject that it addresses and on every, any subject that it sets before us. It is with those thoughts in mind today, perhaps this question to move us to the next element in our lesson. As one then gives thought to the structure and order, not only of the church, but of society as a whole, one can ask any number of questions about the notion of gender. Does God have specific roles in mind for the man as well as for the woman? Are there spheres of activity for each in which there is a limitation to what God will accept as being right? I, in essence, have asked that in these words. What is the biblical role of woman in the church, in the home, or even in society at large? Needless to say, one could perhaps in mind make mention of millions of specific situations or circumstances, and of course we'll not be able to address each and every one, but we would hope to make use of the principles set forth in God's Word that would allow us to be ready to address any of them as they might occur in your life and in mine. I would submit we begin the lesson with five initial points, and then from that to draw some conclusions based on those five. Some of which, of course, as we look at these points, they will come directly from the verse that Brother Cale read for us just a few moments ago. In 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 14, we find a discussion in which Paul addressed to that Corinthian congregation matters that you and I may today find exceedingly challenging, matters that relate to their employment of spiritual gifts. 
Now, since those spiritual gifts, of course, are not resident in the human family today, like supernatural knowledge, the ability to speak in tongues, the ability to interpret tongues, supernatural faith, the ability to heal, those have been forever removed from us per the teaching of 1 Corinthians 13. But nonetheless, that congregation had to deal with them, and they, in fact, had great problems with it. They were, in essence, acting selfishly. They were trying to use the spiritual gifts that they had to make me a name rather than to edify the church, to lift my name up as the one who was doing it rather than to benefit those who might be in the congregation. As Paul began that discussion, there was this set of points that they needed to understand. First of all, the head of Christ is God. That's the very last statement in verse number 3 of chapter 11. Again, that verse reads, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. We learn then that Christ submits to the authority figureship of the Father. It is, in fact, stated in this way of headship. God the Father is head here of that Christ. You'll notice that Jesus, when He came to this earth, in John six thirty eight, He said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. Later we learn in John fourteen twenty eight that Jesus said, The Father is greater than I. The Lord understood this relationship between He and the Father, and the headship of the Father is here asserted before us. As you might notice also, this does, however, in no way insult the Christ. It does not put him in a position of being inferior or an insulted character. Because in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, we learn there, "...let this mind be in you which was also in Christ, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant." And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And thus the greatness of the Christ is set forth for us here, and we appreciate that in other passages too, how lovingly that is in fact taught to us. But there is yet another point. We quickly learn that the head of man is Christ from the same verse. It is thus the case as we see it here, that man is to submit to the Christ, that is to say in submission to or in subjection to the authority of the Christ and that which he has set forth. You'll notice in this passage, again, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 11, it is expressly said to us that the head of the man is Christ. So each of us men must appreciate overwhelmingly that we are not here to do what we want, when we want, the way we want. We have a head. And you might notice here he didn't just say the head of the Christian. The head of man, be he Christian or not, is such that he should appreciate the authority figure of the Christ, and of course in wisdom, he should submit to what the Christ is taught. Now suffice it to say, a worldly man, those who are not in a church service this morning, and a faithful one like that, they are not submitting to the Christ, and they'll answer for that someday. 
They aren't honoring His will. They do not wear His name proudly with the authority of the Scriptures. And they certainly will give an answer for the dereliction of their duty and their responsibility. You might notice a third lesson. We notice it's also stated here that the head of the woman is the man. The head of the woman, Paul stated by inspiration in the same text, is said to be the man. You'll notice then that just as the Christ submits to the Father and the man submits to Christ, the woman is to submit to the man. There is this hierarchy of authority, a hierarchy of understanding with respect to, in essence, the entirety of being, both in God's creation and outside. And in this particular place, you'll notice that just as there has been no insult to the others, just a restriction or a placement into the arena in which it is the very will of God, we find that same to be true on this occasion as well. The head of the woman is the man. We thus learn something vital and interesting. And as you and I use the rest of our lesson to perhaps look more carefully at this statement, we might already begin by making two quick points. You'll note again the word man is used. It does not say Christian. It says the head of the woman, not the Christian, but is the man. And thus that point as it's set before us here should help us appreciate that there is a broader expanse under discussion than is merely what's taking place in a certain locale or in a certain place. And furthermore, it goes on to say that this, as we'll see shortly, is a rather general instruction as was the earlier two. That is to say, Christ's submission to the Father isn't for just a localized or specific time. And the man's submission to Christ isn't just for a localized or short period of time. It's a general occasion that should, in essence, always be true. And so is the case with this third one. Two other points to complete our listing of those five, and then we will also look at some lessons to be drawn from them in a more direct fashion. That's the mission that we just noted. We asserted it here that Paul simply on that occasion said that the head of the woman is the man. But we notice a whole host of other passages, and perhaps your mind has already raced to think of one or two of them, in which in the particular confines of the home, it is presented in terms like these. In Ephesians 5.22, there when Paul addressed the wives, he specifically said, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord. And thus we learn that just as surely as it is the will of God that a wife do this, Paul urged and admonished these wives to have a mindset in which that would in fact take place. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord. In Colossians 3, verses 18 and following, a similar statement, but put in slightly different language. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fit in the Lord. That means it is a suitable thing and an appropriate thing in the will of God that you do this. In 1 Peter 3, verse number 1, we have the inspired apostle Peter addressing this point when he says, Wives, be in subjection to your husbands. And Peter, in the verses that followed, went on to make notice of particular examples, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New, in which that very thing took place. So we notice that this wasn't merely a New Testament regulation. It also was an Old Testament one. It was in the very fabric of time and in the creation of God, if you please. 
But having looked at all of that, you might notice that in Genesis 3.16, something very particular took place there in the Garden of Eden. And it is to that point that we might take a moment's consideration. We will return to it later in the lesson, but for now might we notice, for her part in the fall in Eden, God very specifically, of course, laid punishment upon her as He also did on the serpent and as He also did on the man. But it was to her in particular, He said, Your husband will rule over you. There was from that time forward an appreciation of and an understanding of the authority hierarchy in the home. And the man is to be the head of the household. With those thoughts in mind, notice the fifth point, though, before we move to the next section of our lesson. To say these things is certainly not to say that the Bible doesn't lift exceedingly highly the placement of woman, not only in God's creation, but in the effect that she has had on the character of the human family. You might be aware from some of the reading in ancient history that in many ancient societies, women were in fact downgraded to the point where it was not only insulting, it was almost inexcusable. And yet in the Bible, we find ladies like Sarah listed as, in fact, in the nobility of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. We have ladies like those who ministered to Jesus in Luke 8 verse 3. It's amazing in the gospel according to Luke that many of those assistants and ministers to Christ in His early ministry were in fact the women. Mary, in fact, sat at His feet, listened intently to what He taught in Luke 10 verses 38 to 42. Thus, quite often, a woman has a better sense and a better wisdom in some matters than a man does. And thus, we men should sometimes learn lessons based on matters and observations like that. But you'll notice the essential role that was stated early on in regard to women. As early as Genesis 3.15, it was said that the seed of the woman would crush the devil's power, would bruise his head. There it was stated from that early element in time that it would be the seed of a woman that would ultimately, of course, be the Christ child and that would bless the entirety of the human family. In Galatians 4.4, 4, we learn, but in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law. And thus it was a woman, of course, Mary, that gave birth to the Christ and into this world He came as a blessing for the entirety of the human family in the matter of redemption. Perhaps in addition to that, we learn in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11, that there is a mutual dependency between the man and the woman. We're going to see that more carefully later in the lesson, but notice the brevity with which Paul asserts it, that the woman is not without the man, and neither the man without the woman. That is, the work of the church will, in fact, require and need for it to be all it can be, the services of both. And in a home... We each who have a home like that know well that the husband and the wife need one another. They're there to encourage, support, and help each other. There are things that the woman can do well, the man cannot. And vice versa, things that the man can do well and more efficiently that the woman cannot. The man is not without the woman, neither the woman without the man. And then finally... There is, of course, an equal opportunity that each has for the matter of salvation. Jesus didn't die just for men. 
He didn't die just for women. For in fact, in Galatians 3.28, we learn that in Christ you're all one. There's no Jew nor Gentile. There's no man or woman. There's no bond or slave. And isn't it true in all those ways? It brings us to an appreciation of those five lessons will take us to the next segment or next set of elements in our lesson this morning. That matter of hierarchy and authority that we had seen earlier takes us back to look more interestingly at that element of subordination, that element of submission as it was set before us briefly by Paul in that text before. We notice that there is a submission that is to be characteristic of the woman with respect to the man. And some of the ways in which that is seen, we have already noted, one way is in the home, but we notice in that home God has placed the man in that position of headship. But we as men must now realize we must ever be submissive to the Christ. What we do in that home and what we teach and set before our wife and children as examples and as a guide should be based on the authority and should be, in fact, exemplary of what Jesus would have us to do, for He is our head. But look at what else is also stated for us in the Word of God. What about in the church? Does the Bible address that subordination of the woman to the man in the arena of the church? Let's look at some passages that, in fact, address that very matter. In 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse number 34, and continuing for several verses thereafter, we find Paul addressing a matter that had become a troublesome point in the church in Corinth. This was a circumstance in which some of the wives of the prophets had begun to act in ways that were disruptive to and that thus were harmful to the things that were taking place in their assemblies. And Paul took the liberty to urge a correction to that matter. Now, there's a very similar passage to that one in 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 11. Might I address your attention to that one since it is a little bit clearer for each of us to see the brevity of it and how that Paul gets to the point. In 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 11, it is a passage that as Paul addressed Timothy, that son of his in the faith, who was laboring in Ephesus and who was given charge to set things as they ought to be, that Paul made this comment to him. Beginning in verse 11, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And so as Paul gave this information to Timothy, and of course by inspiration he did so, and it's been written for your benefit and mine, we find that there is this matter of subordination that is even in the very fabric of that passage. He had just asserted that men can lift up holy hands in prayer everywhere. Men are thus given the responsibility of being those who lead in the worship. That has not been given to a woman. In fact, in the text before us, Paul said, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. That word usurp would indicate to us in the King James translation that she's taking the authority or that she is grasping or reaching for it. 
But the original word in Greek does not have such an idea behind it. In essence, it reads in Greek like this. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to have authority over the man, but to be in silence. She is not to possess or to have that authority in regard to the delivery, for instance, of teaching methodologies or or didactic discourses over the man that has not been vouchsafed to her. One might immediately ask, why? Did God have something against the woman? Was it the case that he merely deemed her inferior? Paul tells us the reason. And there, of course, are many who think that, well, Paul was just a chauvinist. It's just that Paul didn't like women. The reasons, in fact, stretch back to the very dawn of time. Paul gives two reasons as to why this injunction was given. First of all, in verse 13, it had to do with the original order of God's creation. The man was formed first. The woman was formed second. In verse 13, Paul wrote, For Adam was first formed. The word for is a conjunctive word that links this to what had preceded it. It's explanatory in force. For Adam was first formed, and then Eve. From the original beginning, notice that the man was formed first. That primogeniture, if you please, had extended also to this point, And there's a second reason provided. Verse 14, it begins with the word and. So this is a second explanation or a continuing one. And it says, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. We go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This had nothing to do with culture. It wasn't just in the church at Rome, church at Corinth, church at Ephesus, church at Laodicea. It was, in fact, that which was the very matter from these early stages. As we go back to the Garden of Eden, what do we learn? We learn that God had given instruction relative to the fruit of that tree. The tree in the midst of the garden was not to be eaten. They could freely eat of every tree of the garden except that one. And yet, as chapter 3 opens, Satan appeared to Eve. He came to her engaged in conversation with her, changed God's commandment, and she believed him. The text says she was deceived. Later in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, it says she was beguiled. In other words, in that that matter of deception, she believed as Satan urged her to look upon that fruit, it did appear lustful to the eyes, and it did appear lustful to, to the flesh. And also, by Satan's final word, it appealed to the pride of her life. It'll make you like God's. You'll be like God. And she was deceived. She partook of the fruit. Then she gave to Adam. Now, he also partook of it, and so he sinned as she did. But you'll notice that Paul says he was not deceived. Satan did not approach the man. He approached the woman. She, in the deception, gave in to the sin. In fact, gave in to that. And with regard to the man, he followed her lead. He gave in in weakness to what she did, and thus he sinned as well. So neither, of course, is inexcusable, but there's a fundamental distinction. Satan, you see, as he tempted her, leads us to appreciate that Adam went into this with his eyes wide open. She was blinded. She believed and was deceived what he said. She had already partaken, and Adam did it anyway. 
That distinction in deception Paul uses here to explain, For this reason I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp or have authority over the man, but to be in silence. That word silence that is used to close that verse is also a very interesting term. That does not mean that she is to sit and make no sound during the time that a service is going on. That is not the meaning of that Greek word. It means she is to have a spirit of meekness and quietness in submission to the man who is leading. May she sing? Absolutely. She's commanded to in Colossians 3.16. In that sense, we notice then again, absolute and utter making of no sound isn't required of a woman, but she is to, in fact, in quietness, submit to the man. You can also see with me in light of those things that that lead takes us to these points as well. Those statements that we've made then so far, in which we notice here the teaching roles in the church when it comes to teaching men have been given to men, not to women. And we notice in that too the following idea. The leadership in the church, for instance, in the position of the elders and the deacons, that has not been given to the woman. We notice expressly at 1 Timothy 3, 2, the elder is to be the husband of one wife. And so that eliminates the possibility of a lady, a woman, being an elder. In verse 12 of that same chapter, the deacon is to be the husband of one wife. And so again, there can be no female that serves as a deacon. As you look at passages in which thus the women perhaps are mentioned in the New Testament, and Romans 16 mentions some of them, we find that they occupied roles of effort and work in the church that did not in fact contradict any of these passages. They were able to labor and work in a way that was for the benefit of God's kingdom, but they did not usurp authority or have the authority over men. They did not thus teach over men in a public way, but they served in the other ways that would be appropriate to them. Now that word man has reference to an adult man. So may a woman teach a little boy. There is no passage of which I'm aware that would forbid such. She can teach a little boy. That's an entirely different circumstance. But when it comes to teaching a man, that again has not been given to her. And it matters not whether he's Christian or not. And in that regard, you'll notice that the vitality and the character of that word takes us to some of these. When it comes to then to the acts of worship, the delivering of sermons, the leading of singing, the leading of prayer, the service of the Lord's Supper, due to that opportunity of positions of authority that those set forth, that again has not been vouchsafed to a woman, to a lady. But in addition to that, you might also notice that that authority that might perhaps be thought to be exercised over men, one must be exceedingly cautious as to the ways in which that is viewed and seen. In the lesson today, we have looked so far at those matters that relate to the actual assemblies or the confines of the church, and we've seen, interestingly, how that I suffer not a woman to teach, to have authority over the man. We've seen in the home in which the husband, the father, if you please, is given to be the head of that house. Might we now ask 
for the third means, the third way in which this is to be viewed. What about society at large? These injunctions in Corinthians, again, seem to go far beyond just the confines of a religious discussion. What about in the workplace? May a woman have authority over a man? What about in school? What about in business dealings? What about in other applications? May a woman have authority over a man? As we look in the Bible for answers, and let me quickly say, we are not any of us interested in Randy's opinion. My opinion counts for nothing. What does God say? In Romans 4, 3, what saith the Scripture? We look for intensity as to how that is in fact set before us. We learn this. In Proverbs 31, we have description of a virtuous woman. And among the things that she did, she considered a field and she bought it. So did she enter into a business engagement with someone, perhaps a man? It would seem so. We also learn in Acts 16 that Lydia was a seller of purple. Did she thus engage in business transactions with a man? Almost certainly. And so there is certainly a way in which we appreciate that a lady can go about a work of life, that she can go about activities in the secular world, and nonetheless be completely in harmony with all that we've learned this morning. During those times when she finds herself in positions of acting in a way that there are those men who are subservient or who in fact address her, she certainly must do so with an understanding of the place that she's been given. But in light of these passages, it doesn't seem to forbid such. But what does that lead us to conclude on that slide? The leading of mixed the leading of prayers in mixed audiences seems to be a forbidden thing. Again, she would have direct authority over the man. Other issues and instances in which that directly would occur. May a lady have a conversation with a man? Absolutely. May she, in fact, urge him to think about spiritual matters? Absolutely. By the example of her life, could she perhaps raise in his mind questions of what's unique and special about her and her devotion to God? There's nothing at all limited in that regard. But if a conversation were to develop in such a way that the point comes where there's great direct intensity relative to the teaching of these matters, she must be very, very careful. She may need to solicit then the assistance of her husband. Would you meet with my husband and me? Just as, of course, Apollos was instructed by Aquila and Priscilla in Acts the 18th chapter, beginning in verse 24. She didn't teach him by herself. Her husband was with her, and they taught him. They instructed him more perfectly in the way of salvation. In these regards, we find some general principles and premises that have aided us to think about the subordination of woman and how that's been set forth in the Bible. In light of that passage, that closing set of thoughts on that slide, perhaps we can summarize our lesson today in ways like this. It is an important subject. It's one, for instance, that a missionary would need to be certainly aware of. Could a female missionary go to a distant place and teach men, despite the fact they're in foreign languages from her? In light of our discussion today, that answer is no. May she accompany her husband, though, and assist in doing so? Absolutely. 
May she serve, for instance, as a translator for foreign languages for someone preaching. It would seem in light of this, the answer is no. She would then be in a position of having authority over a man. You'll notice also these general considerations today have been insulting to no one, be they the man, Christ, or God. We've learned authority is what God has vested in the fabric of this world and the things that take place in it. But we have seen the subordination of woman in the home, in the church, in society at large. And as that fabric is set forth in this way, it is something that reminds us of the last set of applications that we've looked at. That careful thought, both in 1 Corinthians 11.3 and in 1 Timothy 2, verses 12, 13, and 14, was over the man. In the thinking of these matters today, our study of them has taken us to a number of Bible passages and a number of Bible books. And we notice that not only in the first century, but still today, that discussion is still a pertinent one, just as it was in that first century. The Lord's invitation is extended to any and everyone at this point. Are you a member of the body of Christ? Have you had your sins washed away in the blood of Christ? Are you a faithful member of His body? If you've never become a Christian, please think seriously and urgently about that situation. For in fact, at this point, if your life were to end this afternoon, or if Christ were to return, where would you stand from the perspective of judgment? Would you be ready for heaven? Or would you be ready for hell? Jesus said, only those who obey Him will enter heaven. We learned that in Hebrews 5, verse number 9. Today, the commandments that Christ has given for this century, for the next century, for the previous century, still remain the same. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus commands that you believe Him to be the Son of God. With all your heart, you must appreciate that He is the Messiah, the Anointed One came. You need to repent of your sins, commanded in Acts 2.38. Repent, Peter said, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Beyond that repentance, you need to confess the name of Jesus as a Son of God and then to be baptized. In that act of baptism, you come in contact with Christ's precious cleansing blood. You're raised to walk a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If today we could be of assistance to you, the baptismal waters behind me are ready. There would be individuals excited to rejoice over your obedience today. If you have been faithful at one time, you've been a Christian, you've known what that life is, but you've slipped away from it. Keep in mind, it's not Jesus that moved, you did You didn't walk near Him anymore. You walked to the side. You walked a different pathway. You traveled a different road. If we could help you by praying with you and for you today, that you'd be reinstated to a position of faithfulness. 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9 remind us that prayer can accomplish that. And we'd be happy to pray for you today. If you need those prayers of strength, or if you need to obey initially, why not let that be known while together we stand and while we sing.